thankful to be meeting here in the house of the Lord once again with you. And I pray that the Lord will continue to be with us and bless us with his countenance, make his face to shine upon us this morning. And may we be aware of his presence in our lives, even as we leave this place. Over the past week, um, I've had some trying times, and what I have found when I have those is it's very important for me um, to go back to the simplicity of the gospel so that I can get my mind focused again. And so um, this message may be solely for me. If uh, you benefit from it, then we'll praise the Lord uh, for bringing that. But I, I need to go back and look at a couple of things that, as we say in Texas, something you can hang your hat on, that I know I can rely on because this is an ever-changing world that you can't rely on a whole lot of stuff and a whole lot of people are unreliable sometimes. Not talking about y'all. <laughs> but this morning, I would like to speak to you on the subject of redemption. I have my Bible opened up to Matthew chapter 20, if you'd like to be turning there. Um, there are a lot of opinions of what exactly Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. But to be truthful, it really only falls into three different categories. There is the idea that everybody's going to heaven. There's the idea that very few are going to heaven because most folks aren't very good. And there's the idea that there's a multitude that no man can number. I fall into the latter category because I think that's what the Bible teaches. But we're not going to just trust my opinion or another man's opinion on that. I want us to look into the Word of God. But how we answer the question, what did Christ accomplish on the cross, should change the way we live from day to day. Because if we believe that God needed help in our salvation, then we are of all men most miserable because we are lost. I've just told you the end of my sermon. But this question this morning can be answered in three ways. For whom did Christ die? One of the possibilities that is taught pretty regularly and has probably become the most common definition that's out there because we live in a society now that says we all need to be included, and that is the idea that Jesus Christ died for all of the sins of all people. Really what that one boils down to is they don't think anybody's really all that bad, and so everybody gets to go to heaven because we all did okay. We'll talk about that one in a minute. The next possibility has been the most popular opinion among Christians for nearly 2,000 years. Now, we know that just because it's the most popular opinion doesn't mean it's the right opinion, and so I've already told you my opinion of this one. And that is that Jesus Christ died for some of the sins of all people. That's another possibility. And then there is the final possibility that has been the minority opinion in Christendom. And quite frankly, there's been a lot of articles written against this opinion. And I think that's a dangerous place to be because, as you'll see this morning, I think this is what the Bible teaches. And that is that Jesus Christ died for all of the sins of some people. Now, before we even get started in that, I don't want anybody to think that I think heaven is sparsely populated. 
The number of the children of God is of the stars of the heaven and the sands of the seashore. God will have the supermajority in everything. It's quite evident in Scripture. Not because of the power of man, but because of the supreme power and authority and majesty of God. He will not be outnumbered. <laughs> so I like to call that last one when we get there is he died for all of the sins of all of the elect. But we'll get there in just a minute. Let's go back to the most popular opinion in our ecumenical world today. And it actually falls under the title of universalism. And that is that Jesus Christ died for everyone. Now, here in what we have in Matthew chapter 20, um, there has been a discussion. Um, and what we're really looking for is verse 28. And there was a debate as to who would kind of take over when Jesus would go to the cross, and there was always this tension between the disciples. They didn't really understand their role as servant ministers yet. And so Jesus, in re responding to them, says in verse 27, Whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Then he says the word even. And he says, here is how the Son of Man, how I am going to be the perfect example of a servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. That's my title this morning. Ransom for many. To pay a ransom means to pay a cost to deliver some people that were held captive. That's what ransom means. We can also use the word redeem. A price is paid and something is set free or bought back. That is the subject of redemption in that we being the children of God, or let's back up a little bit, that those in the human race in Adam all died and so all are in captivity. God doesn't like some of his people being in captivity and so there needed to be some redemption. They had to be ransomed. Because God loves. So now the question is, how did he do it? And to what extent did Christ accomplish what he came to do? That's really the question. And I don't mean any disrespect when we talk about these things. I'm just going to go over a few scriptures. And this will be different than our typical Sunday morning. So crack your knuckles, get ready to turn in your Bibles. Because I'm not going to stay in one place. The subject of redemption is taught throughout the Bible. And the subject of how it is done is taught throughout the Bible. And we need to know what the whole Bible says rather than a single verse that people like to hold up at a football game to define what God has done to save us. No, the Bible. we got to know the subject as it is written in the entire Bible. So this first possibility that gave his life a ransom for many is that Jesus Christ paid with his life to pay the sin debt of every single human being. That he paid for every sin of every human being. Now, I believe in a successful Savior. If Jesus Christ is a successful Savior, as it is described in the Word of God, then explain to me this. How is it that there are some that are not with Jesus Christ now? If Jesus Christ died for every sin of every individual, then what do we do with the place that's called hell? 
It is a real place, and it is populated. Turn with me over a couple of uh, pages in your Bible to Matthew chapter 25. We're headed to verse 41, but just before that, Jesus describes those that are on his right, his sheep that are on his right hand, and he brings them into the kingdom. But there's another people that are not brought into the kingdom. Matthew 25 and 41 says, Then shall he say, also unto them on the left hand, depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, I'm not going to go into details as to why they deserve that, but we all deserve that. Scripture teaches that. But there, I'm quoting this verse to you to prove to you that there is actually a place of everlasting torment that is separated from Jesus Christ because he says, depart from me, and calls them cursed and puts them in everlasting fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels. This is a real place, and it actually has people in it. Turn with me over to Revelation chapter 20. There are a lot more, but these are the two clearest areas of Scripture that teach this principle. Revelation 20, we're headed to the last few verses of this chapter. If Jesus Christ died for all of the sins of all people, that means there's people that he loves in everlasting torment. I can't believe that for a second because God is not that weak <laughs> that if he loved. But here is the fact. Verse 13, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now we get an idea of why there's some folks that are there. We also get an idea of the answer to the question, what did Christ accomplish? There's some folks whose name are written in a book. The Lamb's Book of Life. That's the elect of God. We're going to get to them in a second. But there's some people who are not written in that, and they'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and they will be judged according to their works. Now, our depravity in Adam is enough to condemn us forever. But people say that's not fair. Well, the Bible teaches why they're ultimately judged is because they acted out their sins. And they are punished according to their sins. So it's not just that they had a sinful nature. It's that sinful nature was lived out. And they are judged according to their work. So this place of everlasting torment, of fire, is real. And it is populated. And people say, well, that, that just, that's just not a, a good doctrine to be teaching anymore. Because we just, we, we just need everybody to get along. You know, that was a slogan uh, quoted by a criminal, by the way. Can't we all just get along um, if you want to check the history on that one? That's not in the Bible. The prevailing idea that goes along with universalism or that the idea that Jesus Christ died for all of the sins of all people is they'll take the text that John says, God is love. And they'll say that means God loves everyone. First of all, that's not what it says. 
It says God is love. But you know what the Bible also says about God? He's a consuming fire. <laughs> All right? And he is a judge. And he is a righteous judge. And he is a holy judge. And he is a jealous God. And he will count iniquity unto generation and generation and generation. If we're going to talk about what the Bible says God is, let's talk about what the whole Bible says God is. God is love. That is one of his attributes. But the attribute of God spoken of the most in the Bible is his holiness. That's the one that's mentioned the most. Because when we sin, that's what's offended is a holy God. And the fact of the matter is, I know what I'm about to say is not a popular opinion. Let me stand before you this morning. It's on audio record. It's on video record. If I ever start to say things that are popular to men so that I'm popular among men, send me out the door. Tell me to not ever try to preach the gospel again because I've stopped preaching the gospel. Paul tells us there's coming a time where men will not endure sound doctrine. The Bible tells us that men like to heap up speakers that tickle their ears, that say things that they like to hear. There were kings of old that only wanted prophets around them that spoke good things and the true prophets of God, they said, I don't like him because he doesn't ever prophesy good things for me. Does the man not know what prophesy means? It means to tell the fact of what's going to happen. This morning, I'm about to say one of the most unpopular things in the world and one of the most unpopular things among Christians. God does not love everyone. Now, before we get upset... Don't get all high and mighty and say, well, God loves me. Well, it's not because you did anything. God loves you because of his mercy, his grace, and it's all within him. Amen. Romans chapter 9 teaches about the doctrine of election and teaches something very, very plain. While you're turning there, I want to mention something to you about the word world. In John 3.16, that was the verse that I mentioned to you a while ago that people like to put on signs and hold up at football games. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I believe that wholeheartedly. But I don't believe for a second that teaches a requirement that we must fulfill in order to be saved. Our belief is an evidence. The key of that verse is God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, if God kind of loved the world and he gave his son, how cruel is that to the son? And how cruel is that to us? But God so loved that he gave the price that would take care of it. And the reason I mention that scripture is people say, well, that means that God loves everybody. God is love. God so loved the world. Well, you don't have to go out of that chapter to find out that you have to be born again. And that means that God does some work on you. And you don't have to leave the book of John to find this. Jesus himself says, I pray not for the world. Now, if Jesus loved the entire world, Jesus would pray for the entire world. Don't you pray for your loved ones? Us fallen ones, we certainly do. But the Holy One of Israel, Jesus Christ, the great Redeemer, the King of kings and Lord of lords, says, I pray not for the world. What are you going to do with that? 
Now, is that uncomfortable? It might sure be. But let us rest in the grace of God. Here in Romans chapter 9, where you've turned to, there's a lesson being taught on the doctrine of election. And we live in the freest society. Well, it used to be the freest society that's ever existed on earth. It's not so much here anymore in the United States. Our freedoms are being taken away every single day. But the freedom that we have to express our will still exists somewhat. The problem with that is when men start deciding that their will is more important than somebody else's will, then they force their will onto someone and you get a war or you get some kind of fight. All the while forgetting about what the Bible speaks of man's will, that the heart of man is desperately wicked. It's deceitful above all and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The will of man in the Bible is not spoken of very highly, but the will of God is. Let's look here. In this lesson, we'll start with the parenthetical phrase there in verse 11. For the children being not yet born. This is talking about um, Rebekah had two children by Isaac. And before they were born, these words were declared. Now, these words were not declared based upon what the men would do. Because let's look at what the men did. Jacob and Esau. Jacob's name literally means supplanter. He stole his brother's birthright. The dude was a con man. How did he end up with more sheep than the guy that he was working for? He conned him. Okay? He wasn't a great fellow. So to have the idea that God's going to do this based upon what he foresaw, this text is even going to refute it. Not having done any good or evil, not foreseeing good or evil. Let's read. For the children being not yet born neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. That's very, very plain. People object, well, Brother Bryce, the original language didn't say that. It was stronger than that. Not only does he not love them, he hates them, and he will destroy them. The Bible declares that the plowing of the wicked is sin. Meaning, I, I mean, I grew up in the city, but now I live amongst a bunch of farmers. That's some hard work. But God has declared that even those that are out there looking like they're doing some really hard work to try to help somebody, God knows they're not doing it for the right reason, and so it's sin because they're not doing it in faith. But what we have here is the important note about whose purpose and whose will we need to be looking at. It's the purpose of God according to election. We want our purpose, we want our plan, we want our will to go forward. We want our will to be the decision in everything. The problem with that is, folks, we are fickle. You know what that word means, right? We change our minds all of the time, and we're extremely weak. In a moment of weakness, we would be and are just like Esau, who was a little bit hungry and sold his birthright for oatmeal, <laughs> if it was even that good. I'm not sure what that stuff was. But he sold his birthright for one small meal. 
But what God is interested in is his purpose and his will. So he says, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now people will say, well, that's just not fair. Well, where he's quoting from, that's what the people said. Said, well, you hated Esau. He said, yeah, but I love Jacob. (laughs) I should have hated you all. Go back and check it. That's the context of it. Said, I should have hated you all, but I didn't. And so people ask the same question today. Well, that's just not fair. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. You don't want fair. Because you're more rotten than you want to know. And if you don't know it, just ask your friends. (laughs) Your enemies will certainly tell you, but your friends will tell you because they know you better. But notice this. Notice how Paul answers this question. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Whose will is under consideration? Yours? Mine? Any politician? The smart guys? The professors in colleges? No. God says it's my will. And folks, that's the only way anything is going to happen. So what we have here with the idea that Jesus Christ died for all of the sins of all the people, I've just quoted you a couple of texts that show that's impossible. Because there's not going to be somebody in God's presence that he hates. And the Bible says that God at least hated Esau. There's plenty of evidence of other folks that he hated here. Quoted you the scriptures that deal with the existence of hell and it being populated. So there's not a chance. There's not the least bit possibility that a person that God's hate will be with him in immortal glory. And at the same time, there's not the least bit chance that one of those that he loves won't be with him in immortal glory. What we have here, and this kind of transitions into the next possibility, and that is that Jesus died, paid a ransom for some folks, but when he paid the ransom, he kind of only paid part of it. And that is that he died for some of the sins of all people. And that you just need to make a decision. You need to have the will to make it so in your life. Well, right here, Paul deals with that. It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Our salvation is not based upon my will. It's not based upon your will. It's not based upon the best preacher that ever existed will. And it's not based upon anything that you do, the run. It is based upon the mercy of God. And so the second possibility, the first possibility is called universalism. This one's called free willism, that man has this free will to choose to do right. If you're dead in trespasses and sins, as Ephesians 2, 1 says, you can't make good decisions. We've already quoted out of Jeremiah that the heart is desperately wicked. It's deceitful. Romans chapter 3 is going to teach some very plain language. Turn a couple of pages back in your Bible. Romans chapter 3, the idea that Jesus Christ died for some of the sins of all people, the sum of the sins 
is everything except your unbelief and your ill will. Jesus didn't die for your unbelief. I got a problem with that. So does the Bible. Romans 3. Verse 3. For what if some did not believe? Hey, there it is right there. What if there's some folks that don't believe the gospel as it's described as we're saying this morning? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? How powerful does puny man think he is? See, this first possibility that Jesus Christ died for all of the sins of all people, when you ask the question, what did Christ's death accomplish? The answer is nothing. And when we look at the question of whether Christ died for some of the sins of all people, and we ask the question, what did Christ's death actually accomplish? Nothing. Because if we have to do something to make it effective for us, to make it count for us, that makes my will and my choice greater than the will and choice of God. Dangerous, dangerous ground to be treading on there. Also, do you believe 100% 100% of the time? I can show you an example right now that not all of us are believing the same thing to the same extent as deeply as we ought to. We've got 25 or so people in this room. If a man were to walk in that back door with a gun right now, we would see 25 different levels of faith. Right? So tell me, what level of faith is it that gets you saved? It's the faithfulness of God. Because we have unbelief so much. A couple of chapters over. Romans chapter 5. Let's make sure we understand something. Jesus Christ didn't just die for those that would accept him. The only reason that anybody would want to accept it is because Christ did die for them. Because here's the deal. Jesus Christ didn't die for the folks that were mostly getting it right. Romans 5 verse 6. For when we were yet without strength... In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Folks, that's fundamental. To have the idea that Jesus died and took care of it, all you got to do is accept it. To accept and follow Jesus, that's a godly thing, isn't it? But Christ died for the ungodly. That meant there was nothing in us that gave us the merit to say that Christ should purchase us. He died for those that were worthless. Poor, weak, and worthless. Though I am, I have a rich, almighty friend. Jesus the Savior is his name. That's where our hope lies. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. <laughs> Think about this. It's pretty clear I've lived now almost 52 years. It's pretty clear that I cannot be a Secret Service agent. It's pretty clear that there's some men that I'd step in front of a bullet for. And there's others that I would say, here he is, and I'd point out where to shoot. Because they're not righteous folks. 
The description here is, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Most of the time, we won't even do that. Gunfire starts, we're hiding, and the righteous fellow gets hit. Yet, peradventure, for a good man, someone even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners. Let me ask you this question. Is unbelief a sin? You bet it is. Christ died for it. And thanks be to God that he did. Because I'm just like that fellow that needed his son healed of that devil. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. That's a great statement of faith right there. Because that man didn't have faith in his faith. He had faith in Jesus Christ. Go back there and read that story. Jesus' own disciples had faith in their ability to heal. They couldn't do it. They gave up and got in an argument with the Sadducees. They forgot about that man. They forgot about that son that needed help. But that man didn't forget. And when he saw Jesus coming, he went straight to Jesus. He bypassed the fellows that were not believing. And he didn't say, Lord, based on my belief, you do this. Jesus said, do you have the faith? Do you believe? If you believe, it's possible. And I said, I know that's not enough. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. If in time Christ forgave unbelief, then he does for eternity as well. Why? Because he died for it. He died for our imperfections. By the way, to promote man's will the way so many earthly religions do and the way popular Christianity does, the reason I say it's in a dangerous place is to promote man's will and man's power and man's decision and man's choice as being more important than God's goes against some very, very fundamental scriptures. Turn with me over to the book of Daniel. Now in Daniel, we have a few kings. Y'all require... Remember, one of them was named a fellow named Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar spoke very highly of his own power and of his own will and of his own ability to bring peace into his kingdom and to bring prosperity to it. That's just a natural kingdom. That got nothing to do with eternity. Just a natural kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar thought, I've got the power is by my own will and my own wisdom. Well, after he grew hair, it looked like feathers and ate grass in the field for a little while. Nebuchadnezzar came to himself. Daniel chapter 4, verse 34. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven and mine understanding returned unto me. Now, here's the deal. Nebuchadnezzar didn't get his understanding back until he repented of his pride and looked to heaven for help. That's what's happening right here. He's still out there in that field. He didn't come to his right mind. He didn't somehow assent to or evolve to this spiritual plane of understanding. He's out there in the field and realizes he's nothing and even less than nothing, and so he turns to the only one that can help. Then his understanding comes. And I blessed the Lord, I blessed the Most High and praised 
and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. This is a pretty big God, isn't it? Now look at his description. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? We cannot question a God like that. That's the God of the Bible. If we are going to be professing Christians that believe the Bible, we need to believe what that says right there. We have no right nor ability to stand before a God like that. You recall Job. God said Job's a righteous man. God said Job's more righteous than anybody else. But when it come time for Job to say, hey, if I could just present my case to God, God came. Job put his hand on his mouth. He couldn't answer the simplest question, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I told the ocean to stop right here and go no further? We're puny. <laughs> we're little. Isaiah. I got to hurry along. Turn over to Isaiah 46. I love this one too. Look at this wisdom and power of God. Isaiah 46 and 9. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. What was the devil's lie to Adam and Eve in the garden? You can become like God. What is the lie that modern man and modern Christianity promotes today? You've got just as uh, strong a will as God does. You may have a more stubborn will than any other human on the earth, but it doesn't match up one bit to this God because notice how he's described declaring the end from the beginning how many of you have plans to get something done and it never gets done but God declares that something's done even before he starts and from ancient times the things that are not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure can we say that? Can we say that based on a seven-day week that we will do everything that is our pleasure and it's going to turn out exactly like we want it to? On a seven-day week, can we do that? Can you do it in a 24-hour day? How about eternity? Oh, let's make it a little smaller. Calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country, yea, I have spoken it, and I also will bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I'll also do it. What's that saying? Over a hundred years before a man was even born, God says, I'm going to deliver Israel by a man, and even calls him by name Cyrus. That's how God can execute his will. Go ahead with your puny little will. <laughs> but thanks be to God 
that he overrules our ignorance. One more here on this subject. Zephaniah. It's right before the book of Haggai. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. Whoa. That's a definite statement, isn't it? He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. How many times does it say will in there? That's God's will. And we can just as easily say shall there. Because it will happen. How is it possible? How is it possible that if Jesus Christ died for all of the sins of all people, and some of them are suffering at this very moment, separated from God for all eternity, how is God joyous in that if he loved them? Didn't. So how is it possible for those that all deserve that? Well, the key is right here in this text. He will save. How? If he didn't die for all the sins of all people, and he didn't die for some of the sins of all people, how? He will rejoice over thee with joy. How? He will rest in his love. See, folks, the key comes from God. Salvation starts and ends in the love and will and power and purpose of God. So the third possibility is that Jesus Christ died for all of the sins of some people. Now, I've already given you the definition of that sum. It's not a small number. It's a huge number, a number that no man can number. It's all of the elect of God. We've had universalism. We've had free willism. Now we have what's called particular redemption. If you use the TULIP acronym, you know, total depravity, unconditional electing, limited atonement. People don't, I, I don't really don't like the word limit. But if we're going to talk about limited atonement, free willism limits the power of God. Particular redemption limits the number of people for whom it's effective for. But remember, when we ask the question, when we ask the question, what did Christ's death on the cross actually accomplish if he died for all the sins of all people? Nothing. What did, death, did Christ's death on the cross actually accomplish if he died for some of the sins of all people? It accomplished nothing. So, well, Christ just made it possible for you. Folks, I don't want it just possible. I need more than that. We all need more than that. So let's look at this last one. Matthew 1, 21. If you've never memorized the scripture, memorize this one. Because this says it all. And it's simple. an angel visiting Joseph. 
And the first declaration of what Jesus' name means is given to us in this verse. Matthew 1, 21, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now let me ask you three questions. This is a pass-fail test, by the way, because if you only got three questions and you get one of them wrong, that's below 70, you fail. Did Mary have a son or a daughter? She had a son. What did the angel say she was going to have? A son. And thou shalt call his name Jesus. Did Joseph call him Bob? No. What did Joseph call him? Jesus. That's where most Christianity stops, is that she had a son, and they called him Jesus, but folks, what makes it a victory is that he shall save his people from their sins. The very definition of the name Jesus is particular redemption. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is not a possible Savior. Jesus is the Redeemer. He didn't try to save anybody. He did save. He shall save his people from their sins. John chapter 6. You know, every time that I've, somebody's actually talked to me long enough where we got to talking about election, and I quote from Romans chapter 9, they say, well, that's just Pauline theology. That's just what Paul taught. Folks, the Holy Spirit wrote the whole Bible. And you can take Romans 9 out of your, don't take Romans 9 out of your Bible, but you can take Romans 9 out of your Bible. You can take Ephesians 1 out of your Bible. You can take away all of the letters written after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you're still going to get the doctrine of election, and you're going to get it in Jesus' own words. John chapter 6. Who did Jesus die for? He died for all of the sins of the elect family of God. Here it is. 37, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us when we were given to Christ. When was that? In the covenant of election before the foundation of the world, Jesus says, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And he's not going to lose any of them, and he's not going to cast any of them out. Thanks be to God, we can't make Jesus Christ so mad that he will say, my blood no longer counts for you. Whew. For I came down from heaven. Notice this even. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. How important you think your will is if the Son of God said he didn't come to do his will? Whoo. You know the way I'm talking is pretty unpopular with some folks pretty unpopular to speak any other way because the son of God said it's not my will but my father's will so what's man's will you know what it really doesn't bother me that that upsets some folks because Christ is not concerned about that God is not concerned about that he's concerned about his own honor and this is the father's will which hath sent me that all which he hath given me. Two times in three verses, the doctrine of election is there. 
all which he, uh, and this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Right there is the description that our belief is not the cause, but the evidence that we've been given to Christ. We come to him in the new birth, and we will be raised in his likeness. The belief that we've been given is so that we can understand. So let me ask you this question. Same question I asked before. What did Christ's death on the cross accomplish if he died for all of the sins of all of the elect? Everything. It accomplished all of it. And so we can sing victory songs. You know, Paul didn't come up with the doctrine of election. Jesus taught it, so Paul taught it. So let's go back to Paul, back over to Romans. I should have just preached from Romans today. Romans chapter 8. Y'all know this one. You can probably quote it along with me. And if you do, I'll be just fine with that. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. We're going to keep reading. Because all things doesn't mean everything that happens here in this world. Not everything that's happening is working together for your good and the glory of God. Even in the Old Testament, God says, Israel, you're doing things that have never come to my mind. That's how evil it was. But what are the all things? Is it God's will and my will? Is it God's power and my power? Is it God's choice and my choice? Is it as so weakly taught for those that claim to teach election to say that God looked down through time and chose those that would choose him? How weak does that make this God? What would Nebuchadnezzar say about that? Nebuchadnezzar would have issue with that. And he was just a, an old king that could never really get it right. He had a very lucid moment there when he declared that power of God, though. Here's the all things. Notice who's at work. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, then he also called. And whom he called, then he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. All of these words are in the past tense. Some of those are easy to understand, but we're going to get to that last one in a minute. That's not really easy for us human minds to understand. For whom he did foreknow. The foreknowledge, the general foreknowledge of God is that God knows everything that's going to come to pass. But if we go back into that sheep and goat judgment, Jesus is going to make a statement. He says, depart from me, I never knew you. Does that mean Jesus didn't know they existed? Does that mean Jesus didn't know what they had done or hadn't done? No, because he says it. He said, I saw you. You didn't help out. <laughs> so what's it talking about? Depart from me because I never loved you. You never were mine. Jesus said that to the Pharisees multiple times. You're of your father, the devil. He says, you cannot believe because you're not of my sheep. See, belief 
can only come if you're a sheep. So it all begins with the love of God. And all of those that he loves, he predestinates to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, I'm not going to take the time this morning, but trust your King James translators. Every single time the word predestinate is mentioned in the Bible, it's talking about us being raised from the dead and his likeness. It's adoption. Every single time. No other human event. No other action of men. Not even your being here this morning. It was not predestinated that you would believe. God knew it. But predestination deals with the fact that God loved you. And so he guaranteed you would be with him and raised in Christ's likeness. That's what he says right there. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, then he also called. He called you to be born again. Did he woo you? No. He drew you like a bucket going down into the water. John 6, Should have kept on reading over there in John. Jesus taught how we are called. It's by the irresistible grace of God. He even taught Nicodemus that it's like a birth. Raise your hand if you helped out mom and dad in your birth. That's the reason Jesus gave us that example. Because we're powerless in it. Our Heavenly Father does it all. And whom he called, them he also justified. Justified by what? By his blood. We are not justified by our righteousness before God because it's filled with unrighteousness. We can walk by faith and have a justification by faith that gives us a peace, but this justification that's under consideration right here is what gets you to heaven. That is the blood of Jesus Christ. You're justified by grace, justified by blood. And whom he justified, then he also glorified. Let me make sure you understand that word. That doesn't mean to walk around more holy. Glorified means to be changed. Paul describes it in the Corinthian letter, to be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. This is talking about this old bodies that we're in right now are going to be changed and made under a glorious body like Jesus Christ. This is talking about the resurrection, and Paul uses it in past tense? Why? Because God said, I can declare the end from the beginning, and Paul said, God done declared it, so I'm going to declare it too. Not based upon me, Paul, but based upon the fact that God said it's going to happen, so I know it's going to happen. And, I, oh, we got to keep going here. Oh, this is so good. What shall we say to these things? Oh, I love this. If God be for us, who can be against us? A lot of folks like that one. They think God's for them and everything because they've declared it. <laughs> be careful with that. God's not for everything that you're for. Let's make sure that our will is conforming to his, not trying to conform his will to our own. Plus, if you're going to quote that one, keep on quoting. He that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things. Paul gets particular, doesn't he? And if you're going to quote 31, you got to quote 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. 
If you want to be included in everything in Romans 8, 29, and 30, you have to believe in election. No, you don't. If you want to reconcile it in your mind, you've got to believe in election. Your belief in it doesn't make election possible. You were elected before the world began. And so God is declaring, Paul is declaring to us. I want to go to one more place and we'll close out. Turn with me over to the book of Hebrews. Because I've already, I had another idea to go to Ephesians 1, but I've already quoted all over that. So uh, that one's a good one. If you need some uh, uh, pecan pie and ice cream to go on it after, go over there and read about to the glory of the, uh, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Hebrews chapter 10. I love this way this is worded here. Jesus is being compared to the sacrifices under the law. Verse 12, but this man. You know that word B-U-T is one of the greatest words in the Bible. Talk about everything that man has done but God. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. If Jesus Christ died for all of the sins of all of God's people, the elect, that's the some people, then what did it accomplish? Jesus obviously thought it worked. He declared it's finished. And right here it says he sat down. From henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. If sanctification only means being brought to perfection, then this word doesn't mean, then this phrase doesn't mean anything. We're to be holy even as Christ is holy, so there is some personal and practical sanctification there, but that's not how Paul is using that word. When Jesus Christ died and rose again and sat down, he did what? For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, chosen, set apart by God. That verse right there teaches that Jesus Christ died for all of the sins. He made them perfect, and he keeps them perfect. He died for all of the sins of the sanctified of God, the elect family of God. They are sanctified. Repeat after me. Thank you, Lord. For my King James Bible. You know what modern versions say right there? Who are being sanctified or being saved? No. Folks, this is talking about that we're chosen in Him. And so, when you say that you believe in a successful Savior, I want you to be able to define that, not so that you can argue with somebody else. I want you to be able to define that so you can rest in His love. And sing about his love. We're not going to be singing about the preacher that saved us when we get to heaven. <laughs> We're not going to be thanking him. We're going to be looking for the only one that could. Because here's the fact. Under any other doctrine, Jesus failed. The Jesus is in this Bible that I read never failed and cannot fail. What's the hymn say? He cannot fail. He must 
prevail? Have faith in that God because you know what? Jesus Christ finished the work. He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. He has perfected you forever. Why? Because God chose you and he sent his son to die for you. He did die for you. He paid for your sins. He has raised God declaring that he accepted it. That's the only acceptance that's important. He had made us accepted in the beloved. And so we can be at peace with God. May the Lord bless you all is my prayer.